Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast, seeking to bring you the best in scholarship and apologetics. I am your host, Nick Peters, and today I'm taking a rather different position. We're going to be having a debate on the show today. We've never done that before. I've never moderated a debate, so this is going to be the first one. And my guests for this debate are Chris Date and J.P. Holding. Let me tell you about each one of them, respectively. Chris Date is the host of the Fee Apologetics podcast, as well as a steward of and primary contributor to the Rethinking Hell project and co-editor of the 2014 Cascade Books publication, Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism. A software engineer by trade, he believes theology and apologetics are for every average Joe in the pews, and not just for pastors, philosophers, PhDs, and erudite in ivory towers. For me, a traditionalist, he was not seeking an alternative to a traditional view of hell, but became convinced by sound exegesis and systematic theology that the Bible teaches conditional immortality and annihilationism. He has since defended the view in several moderated debates and on Justin Browdy's unbelievable radio program on Premier Christian Radio UK. And arguing the other side would be J.P. Holding. James Patrick Holding is a president is president of Tecton Apologetics Ministries. He holds a master's degree in library science and has written articles for the Christian Research Journal and for Creation Ex Nihilo Technical Journal. So, gentlemen, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Chris, you're the newcomer here, so why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing today? Sure, I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can be, those who've listened to me do the podcast know that I'm not good at being brief, so I'll, I'll, I'll try my hand at it now. Uh, I was saved about 14 years ago, 12 years ago, somewhere in that time frame. I don't remember the exact uh, date. Uh, I was formerly an atheist, uh, and I just one day God changed my heart, and I believed and um, devoured as much biblical and theological material as I could. Um, it, I quickly discovered how important, how critical uh, theology and apologetics are when I was encountered, uh, when I was challenged by Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and people like that. And so apologetics and, and sound theology became a passion of mine really quickly, uh, and, it, and it really saddened me when I looked around at the church and saw so many uh, believers ill-equipped to handle challenges from these kinds of groups and from others. Uh, and so it wasn't that terribly long before I got into blogging and podcasting and so forth, and, and that's what led to the The Apologetics podcast. In particular, uh, it was that it seemed to me as though, uh, as though too few Christians knew that they were going to one day rise from their graves uh, in the resurrection. They sort of, they sort of thought that uh, when they died they would float up into the sky and remain in, in remain a disembodied spirit or something like that forever on on a cloud playing harps. When in fact the quintessential hope of the Christian faith is being raised from the grave in in a physically uh, glorified body. Um, so uh, anyway, that's what led to the, the Apologetics podcast. And as far as what got me to this position now that we're debating is that um, I had a host on, or I had a guest on my show. His name was Edward Fudge. Is Edward Fudge? Uh, he's the author of a book called The Fire That Consumes. It's the seminal work on this topic, um, you know, for the past couple of decades. And uh, I was not seeking an alternative to the tra traditional view of hell. It wasn't something that repulsed me. Uh, something that I lost sleep over or anything like that. Maybe that makes me heartless. I don't know. Uh, but that's the reality. And so I gave him an opportunity to present a positive case for this view. I insisted that he present a biblical, exegetical, and theological case, uh, not one based on emotions, sentimentality, philosophy, anything like that. Uh, and he did. He, he rose to that challenge and really impressed me with the biblical 
um, support for this view. Uh, and I leveled every challenge that I could think of, challenges that JP has, has offered uh, in, in argument, arguing against annihilationism, arguments that I had used in the past, arguments that other people have used. And he answered them all in such a way that convinced me over time uh, that virtually every single proof text offered by traditionalists in defense of an eternal hell actually proved to be far better support for annihilationism when they're considered carefully and closely in their context. And so uh, once I became convinced of that, uh, I've become um, really passionate about engaging in a respectful and friendly way with fellow believers uh, who hold to the traditional view, because unfortunately I think that this debate too often generates more heat than light, uh, and I think it's, one, it's an issue that's too often treated as if it's cause for division when it really ought not to be. Um, so anyway, that's why I'm here today. Okay. Now, some <clears throat> listeners might be thinking, wait, uh, Nika, J.P. Holding is your ministry partner, so couldn't you be having some bias here? But you were specifically hoping I'd get be able to get JP for this debate, right? I'm sorry, ask that again. I was what? You were specifically hoping to engage JP on this issue, right? Oh sure, yeah. I've I've, uh, I've visited Tectonics, uh, the website, a, a number of times. I appreciate JP's ministry. Um, he and I have interacted, if only briefly, before on another uh, web uh, another website. Um, where uh, a universalist, Kevin Miller, was, was there as well. And unfortunately, JP and I just didn't get to interact with one another as, as much as we ought to have. Uh, and, and so I was really looking forward to this. And, and just to be clear, I have no doubt that you will be fair and impartial uh, in moderating a, a debate between me and between your friend, JP. And look, you and I have been somewhat friends as well, and you've appeared on my podcast before, so mm -hmm. one could conceivably make the argument that you're biased toward me. Who knows? You, you even gave a, you even reviewed our book very, fairly positively. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so I'm not worried at all about that. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, JP, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing today. Well, of course, I've uh, got a degree in library science, uh, which is uh, naturally the kind of thing that leads you into doing research. And I can't really give any kind of personal testimony. Uh, I didn't. I can't point to any particular time of belief. Uh, it's simply something that, I, that grew into what uh, grew into my life and. Uh, I, I realized it was something that had to be defended as true if I was going to keep it. And so that was the reason I was entered into apologetics. And I had always had an interest in it to some extent, but then about uh, 1996, 1998, I started to do it part-time. Uh, 2001, I converted over to full-time ministry. Uh, at some point in that area, I met this uh, guy named Nick Peters who started doing guest articles for me. And, uh, gee, boy, boy, that was a disaster, let me tell you. I don't know if I'll ever recover from that. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, of course, uh, Tecton grew into a, uh, the ministry it is now. I have over 1,500 articles. I've been writing for a couple of different magazines at the time. As far as the current view on hell, and um, some may not be aware that I'm not a traditionalist in the sense that uh, Chris is talking about. I don't believe in a literal fire or a literal torture hell. Uh, I came to my view on that uh, investigating uh, the social world of the Bible uh, in its own context and learning about the Bible world as an honor and shame based society. And as I made a study of the passages on hell and their society and the way it worked, I came to realize that the uh, contextual clues pointed towards uh, hell as an experience of shame, shall we say, as opposed to any kind of literal fire or torture and also associated with ex uh, exclusion from God's uh, in-group, uh, from, you know, from his kingdom. 
And it's, I found that rather interesting when I picked up uh, Rethinking Hell, when I picked up Chris's collection. The first uh, few essays uh, 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 mentioned annihilationism, which was a view I did not agree with. But then the last couple seemed to be more in line with things that I believed, even though they didn't approach it from the honor and shame perspective. Mm-hmm. So I don't imagine uh, there, he'd have as much of a problem with my views as he would with some of these other uh, literalist views that are out there. Mm-hmm. And I can certainly say that uh, a lot of people had a problem with my views on that. I was even reported at one point to my pastor by another pastor who tattled on me and said that I was holding a very dangerous heretical view for what I was uh, believing about hell. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I don't know if, you've, if Chris has had a chance to be uh, designated a heretic yet, but in time, give yourself some time and uh, you'll have a nice collection eventually. I mean, I've been designated a heretic on more than a few things and uh, I have a very nice collection of uh, trophies for that. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, let me touch on that really quickly. That was one of the things I appreciated about the introduction to your book, JP, was you, uh, you wrote that uh, no doubt some, this is a quote from your book, no doubt some of a more traditional bent will react angrily to some of the views expressed here, as it seems for the defiant Christian crowd, taking away the traditional view about hell is just one step away from heresy. Uh, and yeah, that's absolutely true, and I'm so appreciative that, that you're somebody who is willing to see this issue as perhaps important, I think it is important, but not something worth dividing over and, and accusing one another of heresy over, you know what I mean? No, you're not going to hell for not believing in hell. No. <laughs> okay. well, it, well, let's consider as well. And start with you, JP, with this question. If this isn't an issue of heresy, and you both agree it's not, both of you agree we are Christians, then why should we debate it? What difference does it make? Uh, 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 each of us is satisfied with these views, but uh, we feel, and I don't know to what extent, well, Chris says he used to be an atheist, and I don't know, let me just ask yes or no briefly. When you were an atheist, was the literalist hell a sort of stumbling block for you? Uh, it was one of those things that I thought was absurd about the Christian worldview, yes. Okay. All right, so this is the main reason why I think this is something that needs to be debated and discussed still. Because not, not just atheists, of course, but even you know, people who are nominal God-believers will find the traditional view of hell to be extremely offensive and a stumbling block. Uh, on this point, I have referred to my, one of my atheist friends, a gentleman named Kyle Gherkin, who I've had off and on uh, discussions with over the years, and uh, it was about the same time, uh, last time I talked to him, I think, that I first discovered this view of hell from an honor-shame perspective, and when I brought it to him, he said, well, you know what, that basically solves my problem with hell. Uh, yeah, that, that takes care of it. Uh, it's definitely a stumbling block, and uh, in my own past, one of the reasons I came to Christianity so late was precisely because of people who promoted this view. I mean, I, I knew, uh, the Christian I knew best uh, long ago as a child was someone who thought that wearing a Turner burn t-shirt was the proper form of evangelism. Hmm. Uh, but that definitely does not work, and you know, if, if one, of course, that's not a reason for it to be untrue, but it's certainly a reason for us to make sure that we've got it right. And if we don't have it right, we need to change it. And so, I would say that is the reason why this still needs to be debated and discussed, because uh, this is a big issue not only for uh, Christians themselves, but for all of those outside the church who are looking in at us. Well, Chris, what about you? Why do you think this issue is worth talking about? I mean, you talk about it so much, you've even got a whole website to it. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, secondary in my reasons for why this issue is important to be debated it, it is the one that uh, JP gave. I do think that the traditional view of hell, or rather the traditional traditional view of hell, uh, is in fact a huge stumbling block in, evangel in evangelism. It, it does clearly, ex explicitly on the part of many atheists, contribute to their disbelief and, and rejection of Christ. And, and, if, and here, look, nobody, I think, I don't think JP or I are saying that um, we ought to believe and teach what we think is going to have the most utility in evangelism. That's not what we're saying. But what we are saying is that if the traditional view of hell is, is in error, then it's a terrible error, one that is uh, leading people away from Christ, pushing people away from Christ. Now, I will say I don't think that although some atheists might find uh, JP's view less objectionable, I don't think that's true of most or all of them. Uh, I think that the idea of, I mean, look, I remember listening to a debate between uh, Hugh Ross and a couple of other people from uh, Reasons.org against a panel of atheists, and, and these uh, Hugh Ross and, and others were taking a, a very metaphorical view of hell, similar to JP's, although maybe not quite the emphasis on shame and, and, and contempt. Uh, and and they, they said, they kept saying, no, we're not talking about literal fire, literal torture, etc. They say it won't be literal, but it'll be far worse than something that's you know physically painful for all eternity. And, and I think that, that that's, that's something that a lot of traditionalists have pointed out over time that hold to something like a metaphorical view. They'll say that whatever these metaphors mean, um, the reality is far worse you know, than, 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 the, uh, than what's depicted in the metaphors. And so as whatever shame, and whatever shame that uh, JP believes the risen lost are going to experience forever, I think is still something that's, uh, that, that some atheists are going to think is just a terrible, unjust way to treat the lost. Um, so I, I still think it's an issue worth debating for that reason. But the primary thing in my case, actually, has more to do with unity among believers. And we've already touched on this, but I really think that it's a shame that, uh, that Christians on either side of this debate treat each other with such contempt and vitriol. Um, obviously, I'm a little biased, and I tend to think that that vitriol is a little bit heavy, you know, more, more heavily on one side of the debate than the other. Uh, but my goal, the reason why I take this so seriously, why I'm so passionate about it, why I do so much work in it, is because I want to show traditionalists the kind of, um, uh, how, how did JP describe them, the, the defiant Christian crowd. I want them to see just how biblical uh, this view is, even if they don't agree with it, so that they will see us as brothers who care deeply about the authority and reliability of the scripture uh, instead of as heretics blindly following our sentiments. You know what I mean? So, so that, that's what primarily motivates me. Well, Chris, you've been talking about your views, some, and I think it's about time that what we do is have you say, what is your view exactly? Yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Traditionalists typically, I think, misunderstand, or perhaps worse, misrepresent conditional immortality and annihilationism. And I think, with the most utmost respect for you, Nick, I think that this misunderstanding is reflected even in your own language, uh, in the blog in the blog post in which you announced this debate. You wrote you wrote of annihilation that holds that quote the wicked simply cease to exist unquote. But that's really not that doesn't really accurately reflect our view at all. Our view is not that after the laws are judged, God will sort of snap his fingers and poof, the lost will instantaneously vanish into the ether. Um, to properly understand our view, let's consider the timeline upon which traditionalists and conditionalists agree, and, and then talk briefly about what the traditional position entails. We all agree that someday all of those who have died will be raised from the dead to join the still living, their formerly dead and decomposed bodies reconstituted and brought back to life. We're not, we're not talking about disembodied immaterial souls here. We're talking about resurrected bodies and resurrected 
resurrection entails, by definition, both biblically and in the secular thinking, a dead body returning to life. Hearts once again beating and pumping blood. Lungs once again breathing air. Eyes once again seeing. Ears once again hearing. The brain once again thinking and interpreting stimuli from the, from the body surroundings. And then these once again physically embodied people will be judged by God, and those who are not covered by the blood of Christ will receive what they're due. Now, this is the point at which traditionalism and conditionalism part ways. Traditionalism holds that the bodies of all of these people, saved and lost alike, are rendered immortal, no, no longer capable of dying again. They will live forever, uh, whether they want to or not. I mean, for example, the early 20th century evangelist Hyman Appleman put it this way, quote, you can take poison, you can blow your brains out, you can hang yourself and believe you have left your difficulties behind, but there is no poison in hell, there are no guns in hell, there is no death in hell, unquote. You see, by definition, a resurrected body is a formerly dead body that has been brought to life. And if that living body never dies, it is, by definition, immortal and will live forever. Whatever a traditionalist thinks eternal torment consists in, whether that's torture or shame or whatever, he or she believes that the risen lost will be immortal and live forever. Now, with all of that groundwork having been laid, let me say what, in contrast, I think the Bible teaches. I think the Bible teaches that the lost will be raised mortal. Once again capable of dying, and as the wages of sin is death, so will those not covered by the blood of Christ be judged guilty of crimes which warrant the death penalty. Their penalty will be the death penalty, capital punishment. They will die like the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah did, and like the antediluvians who were washed away by a flood, both groups whom the Bible in multiple places offer as examples of the fate awaiting the lost. The difference, however, is this. If humans have immaterial souls that live on in Hades or heaven after the first bodily death, and that's an issue over which conditionalists disagree, some believe they do, some believe they don't, if they do have such souls that live on after death, they will die along with the bodies in the second death uh, when, when they've been uh, risen, face judgment, sentencing, and execution. The whole person, not just body, but body and soul, will die and never live again. So, so this is the contrast between our views, the differences between corporal punishment and capital punishment, between an eternal prison sentence and an irreversible execution. This is not simply vanishing. This is not simply ceasing to exist. This is being executed violently, perhaps painfully perhaps it's, a, it's an actual death the likes of which we're all too unfortunately familiar with okay well jp that sounds like a reasonable stance really what's your problem with it uh, my problem with that particularly uh, uh can I, how about i go ahead and explain my view a bit first can i do that sure absolutely yeah so i can have a frame of reference for uh I would say I disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, initially, I want to point out, he mentioned, uh, Chris mentioned the uh, Hugh Ross talking about uh, a metaphorical view of hell, and one of the things they said was, well, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, they said, uh, however, you know, it's going to be uh, something worse than what the metaphor is, uh, but that's not where, I'm, where I go with that, and um, in my, in my view, it's not worse than the metaphor at all. It's something they would have understood in terms of their view of shame and exclusion. And as I've, some, you know, as I've studied honor and shame more, uh, I've somewhat, uh, I won't say modified, but uh, made some refinements to what I think it might be might happen to those who will be condemned to hell, so to speak. And I, I've compared it in one of my recent uh, videos to uh, having to live in a trailer park for eternity. Or it's a, and maybe you've heard you in the debate we had on debate God. I uh, said the place where the warm flat beer is served all the time, unless you happen to like warm flat beer, in which you'll get the case you'll get the cold beer. 
uh, in, in other words, I define hell in terms of what it lacks, uh, privilege and position and uh, honor. Uh, I don't, it's, in some cases, it may end up being no different than what you're living here on Earth right now, in fact, is what I'd say. Uh, it goes too far to speculate, you know, but I, I think we will all agree that whatever happens will be fair because we believe in a God who is fair and just. That much I, I know we all agree on one way or the other. And, uh, as I see it, whatever condition people find themselves in as in a condition of shame, it will be equitable and fair to them. And, uh, and that, that's where, that's, uh, again, I think that's something we all agree on. Now, in terms of the, uh, the view that he described in my problem with it, I don't, I don't have a problem with a good deal of it. Uh, I was listening very carefully saying, okay, that's fine, that's fine. Uh, I think the key thing we disagree on is that idea that at some point, and again, I heard him say that some they, they, various people in the conditionals can't disagree as to when exactly this happens, but I'm not concerned about that particularly. The thing we disagree on is that at some point there will be a point of non-existence for those who are condemned. I think that is uh, the key issue between the two of us where we disagree. And as I've said, this is not a big problem for me. Uh, I don't consider it like a big issue where he's going to hell for believing it or anything like that, but it is where we disagree. That, that, that would be about it. Okay, but let me ask you a couple of things now. Okay. You, were, okay. you were talking about your view about some people, are, their life could be no different from what they're living right now and such. So if we were using a contrast, if we looked at World War Two, for instance, Anne Frank was a Jewish girl who, let's presume, died without Christ just for the sake of her argument. She's not going right, to get the right. same sort of after death as uh, Adolf Hitler does, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's in proportion to the things you've done. And uh, yeah, you're right. I used Anne Frank particularly because the atheist I was answering uh, used Anne Frank as an example. And uh, as a no, of course, we, you and I, I think we all know that some, that some atheists will never be satisfied with any explanation except God sends you flowers and candy in the afterlife. Yeah. And so, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, we don't know a lot about Anne Frank's life other than what she gave in her diary, but um, my suggestion was, for example, and again, this is totally speculative, uh, that you know, she would be able to live fairly comfortably, uh, you know, apart from the gospel, you know, apart from salvation, and I think the people, the, the, the Nazi oppressors would probably be compelled to serve her uh, in, in the afterlife and to, and to make up for what they did to her, and, to, and so... Uh, yeah, obviously, there's no literal fire, no literal torture there, uh, but there is something fair to you know what what you committed in your life, and that's now of course. Um, I guess in Chris's view, at some point, uh, Anne Frank might be annihilated. Would that be correct? Uh, she will die forever. Yeah. Okay. So she will at some point she will cease to exist. As a, as, a, as a conscious as a conscious being. Yeah, at some point, sure. Okay, all right. Yeah, that would be the one difference, uh, the key difference again. Yeah. Well, I just want to chime in really quick and just say I understand that you think that's the key difference. I don't. I, for me, the issue is not conscious existence. For me, the issue is life. Uh, I'm going to take a leap here and assume that you pretty much agree with the way I characterized uh, the traditional view as one in which the risen, uh, lost come back to life and they live forever. And I'm not using live in some sort of code language. They, their bodies are alive forever. Um, for me, that is not true. I, I think that the Bible teaches they will die and never live again. To me, that's the key difference, not conscious existence. But I understand that that's a point we disagree on.
Okay, but okay, I'm, conscious, I'm, conscious, I, I, I'm just putting, I'm just putting using different words for the same concept. I know what you mean. Okay. 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 So, um, JP, you you don't really have a problem with what uh, Chris said about the traditional position, right? No. No. No, not at all. Okay. So, what biblically then is your problem with what he said? Uh, really, uh, really, aside from the aside from the diversities, I guess we have to discuss, start discussing some passages at some point yeah. here. Uh, I would assume that there are certain passages that, uh, especially from what I've read in the book, that are interpreted in terms of the uh, annihilation, and uh, that's probably where we would disagree. And I'll take a bit of a leap here too and say that uh, whereas I interpret many of the passages that have to do with fire. To, uh, having to do with, as having to do with shame, that traditionally is is what uh, conditionalists and annihilationists use to argue for an annihilation position. Is they use the fire verses. At least I remember when I read Ed, uh, Fudge's work, he he made use of the fire passages for that purpose. You know, Chris, I'd like to ask you something about that because you've been you've we know that JP's view is not the same as the traditional view that a lot of Christians. Would hold to, and one point you think it's worth discussing is that you think JP's view is very novel. Would you care to explain that and why you think that matters? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a. I think you and I are both friends with a woman named Dee Dee Warren, uh, or at least that's the name that she uses online. Uh, and she had a phrase that she repeated a number of times, an, an axiom, if you will, that I hold a lot of, uh, that I really have a lot of respect for. And the phrase is, theological novelty is not a good thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, that every element of JP's view is something that is novel, but it is something that I think uh, even um, even JPH acknowledges. Is, is sorry, JP acknowledges is somewhat novel. He says in his book, in some senses, the results here are groundbreaking. While I have seen similar conclusions reached, I could find no author who approached these issues from the same perspective and arrived at their conclusions using the same basis. Now, I think this is important. Um, throughout the history of traditionalism, by and large, I think the vast majority of traditionalists have interpreted the fire very literally, the torture very literally, and so forth. Uh, and and uh, in the early church, I can find no traditionalists holding that perspective. Augustine acknowledged that some held to uh, some sort of metaphorical view, but I don't think that I don't see any authors um, throughout the history of the church writing for the kind of view that J.P. espouses. On the other hand, however, I think I can point to quite a number of early church fathers uh, from the Apostolic era, from the Anti-Nicene era, and so forth, who did explicitly hold to some form of annihilationism or, or conditional immortality. Uh, Ignatius said that if God were to reward us according to our works, we would cease to be. The epistle of Barnabas says that, uh, that uh, instead of living forever, the one who rejects God's kingdom uh, in favor of other things will be destroyed with his works, and obviously works can't go on existing forever in this context, I don't think. Irenaeus said that um, we are like God's other creations, like the sun and the moon and so forth, in the sense that they endure as long as God wills that they should have an existence and continuance, that it is the Father of all who imparts continuance forever and ever on those who are saved. Uh, but he says, Irenaeus says, the one who rejects the gift of life, however, deprives himself of continuance forever and ever, and he shall justly not receive from him length of days forever and ever. So, and there are others, Theophilus of Antioch, Arnobius. There, the I think the universally held view of the church for the first century and a half or so uh, was conditional immortality and annihilationism. And I think the fact that this view 
uh, has more ancient representatives than what I than JP's view, in my opinion, uh, is something worth considering. Given again, Vidi's axiom, theological novelty is not a good thing. Let me say right here again, just a little preview of something that's coming up. We are going to be having Dee Dee Warren on the show in a couple of months. Here, oh, cool. So. oh, cool. I look forward to that. Yeah, in fact, she's going to be discussing the topic she discussed on your show with abortion. Oh, oh okay. Now, uh, JP, Chris has uh, brought out some interesting points. Your view is novel, and for many people, yes, that's cause of suspicion. And your view disagrees with the early church, Barbara. So what do you think about that? Well, I've been through this kind of argument before with uh, Mormons, with Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm not saying that uh, Chris is holding a cultic view or anything like that, but I've also been through it with uh, people with traditional views as well. Uh, there's a fellow named David Burkott who believes that the current church is all wrong about things because they disagree with the early church fathers. Uh, we need to remember a few things about that. The first thing is that many of the church fathers were socially and culturally separate in many ways from the Jewish New Testament. And there are many uh, cultural barriers between the two. And you can see this even today. I mean, I have uh, friends from Indonesia, and we often discuss some of the cultural differences and barriers that lead to misunderstandings. And we can see this even in the New Testament because we see heresies popping up and we see different ideas popping up, uh, not always heresy, but we see disagreements popping up over how to, like, deal with the, the Old Testament food laws and what should we do about those, do we need to be certain circumcised, and so on. So the, that, that an opinion or a view may have been held by any particular church father or any group of church fathers is not something I find particularly persuasive or problematic for the novelty, as you say. What matters to me is whether or not I can confirm it from the context of the Bible and from the scholarship and uh, from the data that's in the New Testament. And I don't mind being called novel. I mean, I am, so far as I know, the only person who holds to a preterist eschatology who also is not a Calvinist. Uh, that's, been that's been remarked about me as well. But I believe Hank Hanegraaff would be one of those two at this point. But really, uh, I've been called novel for ever since I've been doing this in the mid-'90s. So I, I might just take that as an indication that I'm on the right track. Well, and, and just to be clear, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't. I agree with you that what the scripture says and, and can be shown to say is far more important. I just think that it, it, it's difficult for me to imagine, and I understand again if this is something that we just disagree on. It's difficult for me to imagine that, that for nearly two thousand years the church has been um, has been unaware of what the scripture has to say on this topic concerning uh, concerning the afterlife. Is it conceivable? Sure. And I always think that what scripture says needs to take the priority. Um, but but I do I will admit to taking some solace in the fact that several if not all of the earliest church fathers held to my view rather than yours. Yeah yeah yeah. Well, it's I've, 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 my experience with people uh, in debate, debating so many people, especially you know, atheists, but also some people who hold the various you know, theological views, is I don't find it that hard to believe that people will go wayward so quickly uh, because. Uh, lack of understanding, especially an intercultural lack of understanding, is very easy to, for that to happen. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, um, but it, it does happen, and it happens very easily. If I can get us starting in some scripture, let's start with uh, you, Chris. With, you've got a passage here that you think strongly supports annihilationism, and then we'll go to one that JP would say would probably support a more traditional view, and that's uh, Matthew 10:28. Would you go tell us what exactly is going on in that passage? 
Yeah, so uh, in this passage, what, what Jesus says is that we should not fear uh, men who can only kill the body but can't kill the soul, but that we should fear God who can destroy both uh, soul and body in Gehenna. And uh, the reason why we conditionalists think that this verse is such clear support for our position is obvious. Um, taken at its surface level reading, which of course is not you know, the, the one that necessarily is the right one, uh, it says it, it indicates that God is going to destroy the body and soul using a word that we would familiar we'd be familiar with as, as teaching that uh, the body and the soul would be no more at some point. They'd be utter, they would be destroyed. Um, but, but it goes deeper than that. You, you see, traditionalists oftentimes um, uh, point to the semantic range of the word apollomy, which is the Greek word translated destroy, uh, in arguing that it means something more like lost or ruined. You know, they'll point to lost sheep and lost coins and wasted uh, oil and broken wineskins as evidence that, uh, that the word has a broader semantic range and, that, and it doesn't mean what it seems to say on the surface. But I don't think that argument holds up. Uh, first of all, all of the other examples uh, that are given, or almost all of them, are, are not analogous. They're, they're inanimate objects like coins and oil and wineskins. They're, they're uh, conscious creatures but not human beings like sheep. Uh, but more importantly, the form of the word is not the same. Um, as, as JP, I'm sure is familiar, Greek, has, Greek verbs have tense and voice and mood. Uh, you know, person and number, and the difference between, say, an active voice and a, and a, um, and, and a uh, middle or passive voice is, um, is, is important. It can change the meaning of a verb, and the same is also true uh, based on whether a word is being used transitively or intransitively and so forth. And if we look at the way that apollomy is used throughout the Synoptic Gospels in the way that it's used in Matthew 10, 28, actively to describe what one personal agent does to another, it consistently means something like or kill. Uh, I mean, I'll just go through a few examples. In Matthew 2.13, Herod wants to kill the baby Jesus, not, not ruin him. In Matthew 12.14, the Pharisees conspired together about how they might kill Jesus, not ruin him or, or debase him or shame him or anything. In Matthew 21.41, uh, the story of the wicked tenants, the vineyard owner kills the wicked tenants. In Matthew 27.20, the elders and chief priests urge the people to have Barabbas released and Jesus killed. Mark 3.6, Mark 9.22, Luke 6.9, and a bunch of others. When, when Apollonia is used in this way, it means something like slay or kill, which really should come as no surprise in Matthew 28, because what Jesus is doing is contrasting what men can't do with what God can. Men can't kill the soul. God can and will. And, and before the argument is, is, before the response is offered that Jesus uses a different word for kill than for destroy, personally, I think that's irrelevant. Synonyms exist in every language. And in fact, um, uh, the, the word, if you look up in plenty of lexical, uh, lexicons, dictionaries, you'll find that apollomy is in several places synonymous with, uh, with kill. Uh, and, you know, if you look at where Jesus is talking to Peter uh, after his resurrection, if I remember correctly, he, he asks Peter, uh, you know, do you love me? The word love is used several times in this, in this conversation back and forth between Jesus and Peter, but two different words are used for love. And I think that, uh, I think that pastors too often treat that change of verbiage as if it's incredibly significant, when I really don't think it is. They're using synonyms for love in the same way that I think Jesus is using the synonym, uh, a synonym, synonym uh, for kill, which is apollomy or destroy. So, so what I'm looking for from somebody who holds to a view, a view different than mine when it comes to Matthew 10, 28, is, is a reason why we should interpret his use, Jesus' use of apollomy here in a way that's different from all the other ways in which that word is used in this way uh, throughout the Synoptic Gospels. And, and I look forward to, to, to hearing that response. Well, JP, it sounds like a literal challenge there. Do you have it? 
You said that it, it seems to be a different category when a human being is the subject of a polymy. And yet the person who is killed at that time uh, certainly does not cease to exist. The body is simply put out of function, which I would say is a form of ruination. But the, of course, the critical category here is how do you apolemy someone for an afterlife situation? And my understanding of the honor shame society and the way that, that work is that would suit very well the idea of placing them into a state where they lack privilege, where they lack honor, and where they are no longer uh, part of God's kingdom, shall we say, or God's collective in-group. Uh, again, this, uh, this would point to what I was discussing earlier. I say where, on the one hand, uh, Chris and those who follow this and similar views would interpret the verses in one particular way in support of their position, but I would say that I, with the honor and shame template, those uh, particular metaphors come already occupied, and so there would be no room to fit in any other viewpoint. Once the, once the honor and shame template is in place, there's no justification for a different metaphorical interpretation. Let me just say one quick thing. We'll get, I definitely want to get to the shame template, so to speak. Uh, but, but I just want to reiterate what I said at the beginning of the debate, that, uh, that the traditional view, including JP's, is one in which the risen, resurrected bodies of the lost live forever, immortalized forever, live forever. Uh, and yet Jesus uses a word here, which when used in this way, uh, active, transitively, from one personal agent to another, throughout the synoptic gospels means to kill or to slay. And he's contrasting what men can't do, which is kill a soul, uh, but can kill the body, with what God can do, which is kill both. So, so I, I really think that, that this interpretation that JP is offering is a real strain uh, on this verse. I, I think it really is kind of ad hoc, in fact. I, I'd be interested to see where Ptolemy, used in the way that Jesus is using it here, can refer, again, active transitive one person to another, can refer to the kind of ruination and, and shame that, that you think it is, JP, uh, in still living bodies. Um, JP, before you respond to that, one thing I'd like to have cleared up for our listeners is you've spoken regularly about honor and shame. Could you explain what you mean by these categories? Because some of the listeners might not be familiar. Yeah, in general, let me do that. The one thing I would say, first of all, is that this is something only God can do, because only God can judge people and uh, say that they are worthy of the eternal exclusion or worthy of the eternal shame. Now, in terms of what this is, and... Um, and I, I would, and I, I would I have to ask, and I'll ask a little later after I explain this, if, if Chris would explain what he means by ad hoc, because I assume he doesn't mean I'm simply, I have to ask this because it's what I've had people ask me. When they people call this position, I have ad hoc, they sometimes accuse me of actually making the whole thing up, and I don't think Chris is doing that. But uh, here's what I generally mean by honor and shame, and I'll just give a summary of what I have in, in my ebook, which I, I think Chris has read. Um, the whole concept of honor and shame is uh, somewhat, up, somewhat up for debate in terms of the precise measure of what it means. But uh, in general, here's what, it, here's what we have. Um, honor simply refers more or less to reputation and standing that you have in the eyes of others. And uh, whereas shame refers to having a lack of that and, and being excluded from, from others and their group. And the world of the Bible is, was much like the social world in 
have 60% of the world eating today, but throughout history, some 99% of the people and societies that have existed have been honor and shame oriented. And uh, there's a good uh, amount of material out there that can be read up on this. I'll just mention a couple of books that are good to read. Uh, David DeSilva's Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity is excellent. And any material by a group of scholars called the Context Group is a good place to start. Um, so, so in this, in this particular uh, worldview, uh, worldview uh, if people relate, if people relate to each other in terms of this honor and shame template, and, uh, and uh, those who have the reputation, they receive privilege, uh, they receive recognition from others, those who have shame are shunned, they are excluded, uh, and that's one of the reasons why, for example, uh, one of the punishments for the early church whenever someone sinned was that they were excluded from the church, like the fellow who had been uh, having sexual relations with his uh, father's wife, they said, you know, throw him out of the church. And that, that may seem like, well, what's the big deal? I even had an atheist recently say, well, what's the big deal about throwing the guy out of church? I mean, so what? He'll just go to another one. No, that's not how they saw it. When you are excluded from the fellowship of believers, when you're excluded from your in-group, you are cut off from everything that meant everything to you. And so this was, that wasn't simply a trivial punishment. That was one of the worst things you could do. And in their world, I like the way one scholar has put it, honor was as important to them as paying the bills is to us. And, uh, but again, if you really need a full world picture of it, we're not going to have time to go into every every detail here. Any one of those sources is a good place and to start. before Chris responds to what you've said, I'd like to put in another one. I'm sure you agree with it. And I've actually interviewed the host on the show, and that's Eve Randolph Richard's book that he wrote with Brandon O'Brien called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Yes, that's an yes, excellent source that's too. An excellent source too. Yeah. Chris, what do you think about what JP's been saying? Yeah, uh, I'd love yeah, to, uh, I'd love to uh, talk about shame uh, and contempt in a moment. I do want to just answer the question in advance. I don't think that JP's entire position is ad hoc. It's specifically uh, his treatment of Matthew uh, 10:28 and, and the approach any traditionalist takes to Matthew 10:28. I don't think they can actually deal with the verse. Instead, they have to try and fit it into uh, a framework that they've developed from how they interpret a, a handful of other passages. And I do think it is a handful of other passages. But in terms of the in terms of the shame and contempt idea, I mean, that's clear. That's obvious. Um, but, but the idea that the, that the punishment of the risen loss will include an element of shame doesn't really support J.P.'s view or any, or any traditional view over annihilationism. And nowhere does the Bible indicate that the risen loss will experience shame forever. Uh, Daniel 12.2 says that they will rise to shame or disgrace, yes, but it's contempt, which it says will be eternal. And the word translated contempt appears in only one other place, Isaiah 66.24, where it describes not what the lost feel, but what the still living righteous feel contempt toward the rotting, smoldering corpses of God's slain enemies. You see, shame and disgrace are often connected to death in Scripture, and in contrast, glory and honor are often connected to life. Uh, in Romans 2, 7 to 8, Paul says that God will give eternal life to those who seek glory and honor and immortality, but that wrath and fury will instead, not eternal life, not immortality, will instead be exhibited toward those who presumably seek shame and disgraceful things instead. Listen to this, for example, from the wisdom of Solomon. Obviously, the wisdom of Solomon is not the Apostas, God-born Scripture, but it provides us with, I think, an insight into the Hebraic mind when it comes to shame and death. It's Wisdom 2, 17 to 20, and it reads like this. Let us see if his words are true and let us test what will happen at the end 
of his life. For if the righteous man is God's child, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. Now notice that the insult and the torture is not here said to be accompanied by shame, but death is. You see, in the Jewish mind, shame and death are not incompatible in the slightest. In fact, consider just what it is that Jesus bore in our place as our substitute, whether we're talking penal substitution or some other view of substitution. I happen to hold to penal substitution, but that's something we can debate another time. The point is all, uh, virtually all um, uh, atonement models hold some sort of element of substitution. And what did Jesus bear in our place? A shameful death. Crucifixion was gruesome. It was a disgraceful way to die. Roman citizens were exempt from it, and it was reserved to the most heinous of criminals. Jesus bore a shameful death as a substitute in place of his people. So it follows that that fate, a shameful death, not life and immortality, drinking warm, flat beer, is what awaits those who will, be, who, who will not have been covered by his blood. Say, Pete, what do you think about that? First of all, I guess I'll need to point out that I don't believe in penal substitution. <laughs> And since we don't have time for that, I'll just have to suggest to Chris that he might, I'll even send him a free copy if he'll email me. I'll send him a copy of my book on the atonement because uh, I've recast that in another completely novel way that I, I suppose he'd say. It doesn't include substitution at all? Not, not, no, not substitution. It's more like representation is what I call it. Uh, definitely not substitution except to the extent that sometimes representation can be considered that. Uh, I think the book, everything that uh, Chris just said, you know, I was trying to find out well, where does this cause a problem for my view, and it seems that the only spot I could find a problem with is, the, is where how death is to be defined. And it seems that he's wanting to define death in terms of only annihilation or only the, what the conditional immortality is. But uh, I think there's a, there's a broad understanding that the word death in Scripture has to do with more broadly uh, it has to do with a lack of presence of God, a lack of association with God, or in other words, not salvation. Uh, this goes back, for example, to the Eden story, which is, says, if you eat that fruit, you will surely die. Well, as atheists are so fond of pointing out, well, no, they didn't literally die, but... Uh, the, the reply that we've made to that is that death simply didn't mean uh, you know, the physical expiration of the body in that case. It meant they were separated from the fellowship with God that they were intended to have. And to that extent, uh, that reflects the view of shame that I'm holding to here, which is an eternal separation from fellowship with God. And so I would say that the death does fit in with, with the, what I'm describing here. Well, let's hold on a second, though, because uh, the, the phrase on the day that we do the fruit, you shall surely die, is not the only testimony we have in Genesis 2 and 3. In fact, that phrase, dying you shall die, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, and it doesn't mean literally on the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. It means you will fall under the sentence of death. Uh, and in fact, when God reiterates in different verbiage the punishment uh, that Adam and Eve would face as a result of having eaten from the fruit, it is in exactly the kind of death with which we're all too woefully familiar. God says, when he pronounces the curse upon uh, on Adam, he says, uh, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of 
you in pain, you shall eat of it, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, uh, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for, out, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then we go on to see that God revokes from Adam and Eve access to the tree of life for the express purpose of, so that they would not live forever. And, and it's clearly talking about physical life there. They would not live forever. If they had already died spiritually, obviously it wouldn't make any sense to say they wouldn't live forever. No, he's talking about physical life, and in fact they do go on eventually to die. Now what's interesting is that the tree of life appears again in the closing chapters of Revelation. I mean, who has access to it? The same. So the idea that um, the idea that, uh, that you, of, of your view, JP, as well as most traditional views, that the risen lost are going to be immortal and live forever, yet despite not having access to the very tree of life that is what would have granted Adam and Eve immortal, uh, immortal, immortalization and life forever, I, I think is a real bad reading of, of, the, of, of the tree of life text. JP. Uh, well, a couple of things. I mean, I don't think the tree of life is the only way that God could grant immortality of any kind. Uh, certainly, Jesus did not have to eat from the tree of life to be resurrected. But here, I think the key here, again, is, uh, is to use the example, Herod wanted to kill Jesus. Well, I don't believe Herod would have been under any illusion that in killing Jesus, uh, Jesus ceased to exist completely. Uh, but he's transformed. Well, let me finish, though. Now, Jesus was not transferred to non-existence. He was transferred to another state entirely, and that is in line with what I'm trying to say with the usage of Apollome, which is that the person, the human being, is transferred to a different state, not a pleasant one, compared to the heavenly life, but they do not cease to exist by any means. Yeah, you know, I, I get really, I'll be, I'm just going to be frank here and honest. This is not um, meant as an insult or anything like that, but I get really frustrated when traditionalists uh, throw out this red herring, this canard about ceasing to exist, as if, as if it's relevant. It's not. We've already established that the traditional view, including yours, is one in which the risen lost, their bodies will come back to life, and they will live forever in the ordinary sense of the word life. They will be immortal in the ordinary sense of the word immortal, and indeed the way that the Bible uses those terms. So, so to say that, um, that to, to, to throw out this red herring of ceasing to exist is, 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 is moot. It's beside the point. The point is, when Herod, when, when Apollomy is used in reference to what Herod wanted to do to the baby Jesus and so forth, it clearly means that they wanted to kill them. They didn't, they didn't have it. It's not like they wanted, it's not like they actively, consciously wanted to convert their existence into some other form. No, they wanted to kill them. They wanted to take life away from them. But it's eternal life is the very thing that your view attributes to the risen lost. All right, but is eternal, right, life, but is eternal life more than simply being alive? I think it entails more, I think than, it entails that, more than that, but it's at minimum that. All right. But All right. But if you take away eternal life, then if it is inclusive of more than simply being alive, then eternal life, if you take away eternal life, you could also be taking away privilege, you could be taking away honor, you could be taking away everything that makes it meaningful. I just don't think that's true. Well, the thing is, according to what I've discovered by way of how they understood this whole honor system, that is what it would have to mean. Can you give me any examples? And, and maybe you can, which I'll be gleefully surprised. Uh, can you show me any example where, um, where this verbiage, this language of being killed, of being executed, of being dead, and, uh, is, is tied to the idea of being alive and experiencing shame? 
I understood. I don't think I understood you correctly. It sounds like you're asking for two different things. No, no, I'm sorry. What I mean is, can you give me any examples in which this language of being dead—not not just the word death, but you know, having being utter, being dead, being a corpse, having maggots and fire consume your body and so forth—is is tied with tied together with the idea of actually, in fact, being alive and experiencing shame. Well, again, that doesn't seem to make sense. Let me put it another way. I agree. You were talking about, I, think, I don't think you're quite understanding my point here, and that's what you're saying. Let me put it this way. Uh, the burial of Jesus, for example, was considered to be a shameful burial, okay? Because when you were buried, you died and were buried, in order to show the corpse honor, there were certain things you had to do to it. You had to be buried in your own family's grave, and for example. And in that particular case, Jesus' burial was shameful because he was buried in someone else's grave, not his own family's grave. Yeah. More to the point of our particular examples of worms, for, uh, as you were saying. One of the things that they did to the body, and this was Joseph and Nicodemus, I believe, trying to restore what honor they could to Jesus' body in spite of the burial in a non-family tomb. You did what you could to try and avoid allowing worms to get to the body. And so, for example, they would wrap it up, they would put the spices around it, they would put it on top of the, um, on top of the bench in the tomb, and eventually, of course, within a year or so, they would come back and get the bones and put them in an ossuary, which was also supposed to be an honoring thing. And so there you have the tie-in of worms uh, and, and decay with the idea of shame. Sure. That's, and that's why I say that the metaphors of in, uh, reference to the worms, and, as well as the fire, but the worms in particular, indicates a state of dishonor rather than a, yeah, anything else. I'd like to now, jump. Oh, now, sorry, JP, I didn't realize you were done, but I will jump in like quick here to say that he wants to know more about the burial thing. Where no man had been laid, it's Byron McCain's article on it. You can read it online. Right, JP? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's a very good article on, on the subject. Now, I'm also not quite understanding how it is a red herring to refer to uh, the, the non-existence aspect. So let me get make sure I get this clear then. The exact verb, uh, apolomi, okay, what is it that that is actually describing as happening? What action is that? You say killing, but let's be more specific. What what specific act is that referring to? Is that is it referring to the annihilation, or is it not referring to it? It's, it's, it's referring to rendering living people dead. Okay, but does that include annihilation? I don't think that that verb necessarily implies that, no. I think, I mean, ultimately, I do think that, hold on, hold on I'll answer your question. Ultimately, I do, ultimately, I do do think that those who experience the second death and die, they will, their bodies will eventually be eaten up by maggots and fire and, and converted to ash or whatever that will blow away. I mean, yes, they, they won't consciously exist anymore, but that's, that's a side effect of being killed. So, so Apollomy is, is, uh, is, just as it's used throughout the Synoptic Gospels in the way that it's used here, refers to rendering a living person dead. Okay, but here's what I'm trying to get at. It's Every, every, uh, every, every, uh, the other, you know, I've read many conditionalist authors, and I, I respect the fact that they're, they have different views, so I'm not going to peg you with any particular view here. I'm just going to ask you to give your view. And many of them that I've read say that the verb apolomi, and I hope I can continue to pronounce that correctly, I just have to remember the word apolomi and remember it correctly. 
They, they can say they, they many, can, many that I have seen argue that Apollomi specifically refers to annihilation. So is that so your is point of view, or, or, or I'm forgetting that it's not your point of view? Well, you have to be careful when you say refers to annihilation. Uh, you see, the reason I think why annihilation has become the moniker for this position, uh, it didn't used to be. Conditional immortality is a more historic term for this view. But anyway, the reason why annihilation has come to be used is because it doesn't apparently matter if we speak in terms of death or destruction or vanishing or being no more or disappearing like smoke or melting away like a slug or disappearing like a dream that you forget after you wake up. All these biblical, all this biblical language, it doesn't matter if we use it. The only word that apparently gets through to traditionalists you know, is the word annihilation. And I think that most annihilationists just use the word to refer to being killed in the ordinary sense in which we use that word. But it's a death that will, uh, will carry over to the soul as well. So do I think that the word Apollomy here refers to annihilation in the sense of being killed? Yes, I do. Do I think that it inherently carries the, the meaning of ceasing to exist altogether? No, I don't. So really, uh, then, uh, you're not, I'm not you're, addressing, your, I'm not addressing your view in my book when I talk about that. Well, well, I, I, I think that you are reading too much, and, and again, this is just me being honest and, and not trying to offend. I think that you, like most traditionalists, read too much into the language of conditionalists. I don't think that conditionalists are trying to make the argument uh, that Apollomy and, and other kinds of language refer to annihilation in a metaphysical, scientific sense of that word. Again, I think that they're just using the word annihilation and ceasing to exist as language intended to communicate what it seems like all the other kinds of language we might use, die, be destroyed, cease to live, etc. All this language seems to go over traditionalist heads, typically. They're like, well, I think that's going to happen, too. Well, no, you don't. Um, and, so, and so we kind of have to use a word that can't be escaped. It's, it's meaning is, is as emphatic as possible. So I think that you're just reading a little bit too much into that. Well, I'll respect that as, in terms of your view, but I have read so many people's views on this that I imagine it's been many years since I've read them, but I do specifically recall uh, people who said exactly as you're describing. There are some who do so, yeah. So, that's, well, that's why it's good to go through these clarifications. Uh, it doesn't sound like in, in this particular case uh, we can get any further with Apollomi because uh, there's nothing specific for, you know, that, uh, that, drives it, that drives me against your reading of it. I could say that what you're describing is perfectly compatible with an idea of shame. So, uh, in so that specific one, I don't, I don't think we can get much further. Well, all right, and that's, and that's at that point, Ben, I'm going to jump in here right quick because we're going to switch to another passage, so we don't stay all the time. This one, this one, but I think would favor JP's view more. See how Chris responds to it. But I want to make a brief little jump in also and say that right now you're listening to a debate between Chris Date and JP Holding on the nature of hell. Do we have conditional more? immortality or a traditional view but if you're listening to a show next week my friend Cynthia Hampton is going to be on and we're going to have a show talking about Jehovah's Witnesses I believe she came out of a watchtower herself so it'll be an interesting show talking about all the differences that separate Jehovah's Witnesses from Christianity so I hope you'll be listening next week to the show but now we're going to get back to our debate and let's go to another passage you all fine with that? Yeah sure Okay. Yeah, sure. In Revelation 14, 9 through 11, and uh, yes, Revelation is definitely a difficult book to interpret, very apocalyptic, but I think this has been said to be the biggest challenger to a conditionalist view. You have a 
seen there set with the lake of fire there, and the, the people who go in it, the smoke of their torment goes forever, going on and on, and they, they are tormented in the presence of the Lamb without end, if I'm getting my paraphrase correct. Uh, what do you think about that passage, J.P.? Well, of course, I interpret that again in terms of the uh, honor and shame view. And let me just pull up what I have on that again. Um, <clears throat> but I, yeah, but of course, we have the figure of fire, and I've interpreted that in terms of shame. I've discussed the word torment, which, again, I read in terms of shame. Well, that's has to be expected. And uh, so that's that, you know, allowing for the fact, of course, that Revelation is a unique genre, that it's an apocalypse. We're expecting to see a lot of really wild figures of speech. We're expecting to see a lot of uh, dream language, like you're reading a sort of a psychotic version of Alice in Wonderland, I guess you might say. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what some of these atheists I've talked to say. They think, they think the author of Revelation was on drugs. Yeah. Richard Carrier, I think, in his latest book says that it was pretty much an acid trip. Yep, that's right. He says it's an acid trip. <laughs> so yeah, again, you know, it's pretty straightforward. I don't have I don't have a whole lot more to explain on that. But again, when I when I start with the social view of honor and shame and how, what they consider to be most important, and then compare the uh, other uses of fire throughout the text, and especially when it's used in in distinction to water as reflecting the Holy Spirit, that is going to be how I'm going to read that passage. Now, Chris, uh, before you respond, when you're answering, would you agree also with what I said earlier that this is usually seen as the most difficult passage for the conditionalist view? I think that traditionalists think it is, but, I, but you know, as I've said in, in many venues before, um, I have found that with virtually no exception, every single traditionalist proof text actually favors annihilationism, and that includes this one. Now, most of the things that JP said about the nature of revelation and how it's to be interpreted, I'm sure you'd agree with that, right? Wholeheartedly, yeah. I mean, Wholeheartedly, yeah. I mean, I, I obviously don't think that John was taking acid or, or some other drug, but I mean, that's the nature of apocalyptic visions. You go back to one of the earliest ones I think we have recorded when, when Joseph, or sorry, yeah, when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. You'll recall that Pharaoh had these dreams of cows eating other cows and stalks of wheat eating other stalks of wheat or whatever. But when, but when Joseph interprets this imagery, it's nothing like what actually takes place in the vision. So yeah, visions, apocalyptic visions are very symbolic, highly symbolic, and what happens in the imagery is not necessarily at all what will actually happen okay, in real life. Wait, so what's your problem with JP's interpretation of this passage? Well, I think my problem with it is that I don't think it accounts for the way that that language appears in the Old Testament. Bear with me. I, I understand that most people think that this is a, a difficult passage for my view. I don't think it is, but I need a moment to, to explain why. So what you've got to keep in mind is that, as Richard Bauckham put it, and this, this echoes what we've already been saying, Revelation is, quote, a highly stylized form of literature with its own conventions of symbolism and terminology, a literature of dreams and visions never intended to depict an end in literal terms. Unquote. And second, you need to keep in mind as I get into this, that as G.K. Beale notes, who is no friend of the traditional or of, of uh, annihilationism, mind you, he notes that, quote, no other book of the New Testament is as permeated by the Old Testament as is Revelation. Although its author seldom quotes the Old Testament directly, allusions and echoes are found in almost every verse of the book, unquote. So with, so with those two things in, uh, things in mind, let's look at this passage a little bit more closely. 
so the, the passage speaks of smoke rising forever from the torment of restless beast worshippers. Uh, it speaks of drinking God's wrath, fire and sulfur, you know, again, smoke rising forever. Well, this is all language that we find from, uh, from the Old Testament. Job 21, verses 20 and 21 says, Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Their months is cut off, uh, an idiom referring to the end of their life. In the imagery of Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 33, the nations are made to drink of the cup of the wine of God's wrath, and God summons a sword against them, and their dead bodies won't be buried, but will instead be dung on the surface of the ground. So, so drinking of God's wrath is, is, is idiomatic, an idiomatic symbol referencing uh, being slaughtered. And I think this is true also of the imagery of sulfur and fire and of rising smoke. This is language that comes from Genesis 19, 24, and 28. And Isaiah 34, 9 to 10, in which fire and sulfur destroy cities and slay their inhabitants, and smoke rises forever from their remains. This imagery of smoke rising forever from torment symbolizes death and destruction. But here's, here's one more thing I'll just add. This language doesn't only come from the Old Testament. We see it elsewhere in Revelation itself. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the, the verses right in front of me, but later in Revelation, um, the, this, this, this blood-drunk, vampiric prostitute riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast is said to be tormented by fire three times in one passage, and then in the beginning of the next chapter, I think it's Revelation 18, 17, somewhere around there, uh, this, this crowd cries out, hallelujah, hallelujah, for smoke rises forever. So again, we have these same elements, smoke rising forever from torment. But at the end, but the, but at the end of the chapter in which this scene takes place, the angel interprets this imagery for John and says that what it symbolizes is a city being, uh, he, 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 he uh, uses a rock and throws it into the stone as, as an image of a city disappearing, and he says, so, so too will the great city be no more. So, so this whole passage, uh, Revelation 14, 9 to 11 and elsewhere, it, it, it's, it's imagery that communicates death and destruction, being slaughtered, vanishing from the face of the earth, being nothing but ruin and, and ash and, and, and rubble um, and smoke rising forever from it. It, it. It's not unlike what we think of when we see a mushroom cloud now, you know, it's, 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 it symbolizes utter decimation, utter destruction, utter slaughter. JP, I'm sure you probably wouldn't disagree with what uh, Chris said about the use of, of the Old Testament in Revelation. Now it's full of illusions and echoes. But if that's the case, I mean, it sounds like he's saying the illusions and echoes are to destruction. Isn't that a problem? Well, yeah, I obviously have no problem with it as being allusions to the Old Testament, but I'm just, again, I've been listening to this trying to get a handle on where I'm supposed to have a problem with any of this. And uh, the one thing that I was able to hook on to is this idea of language made non-existent, of the language of non-existence. Now, as it happens, and this seems totally unrelated, but it, 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 it does work out this way. Yeah, I have dealt with people who claim that Ezekiel's prophecy of the city of Tyre was mistaken because Ezekiel said that the city would be no more. And then they immediately say, well, look at this. Here's the city of Tyre that was still around much later, even after Ezekiel said that it wouldn't be around anymore. So why was what's the problem there? You know, Ezekiel was wrong. Well, what you find is that you have language like that being used of things that are clearly not anymore, that are still around. And I use an example here from Pharaoh Ramses III, who said of some people he went against, I slew the Denyan in their islands while the Jekyll and the Philistines were made ashes. The Sheridan and the Washesh of the sea were made non-existent, captured altogether and brought on captivity to Egypt like the sands of the shore. Well, clearly, when Ramses tells us these enemies of his were made non-existent, 
mean that. He doesn't exactly mean that exactly literally because he goes on to indicate that they were captured. And so this language, so this language of things being made non-existent and being no more, clearly in that case does not refer to something not existing in a literal sense. And again, I would fit that in, again, since that's my natural template, with the whole idea of shaming. And that would fit with the enemies of Ramses because they were brought to defeat in war, and that was one of the ultimate shames for an well, just to reiterate, though, Job uses the idiom of their months being cut off. It's reference to the end of their life. And in Jeremiah, their corpses are left unburied like dung on the surface of the ground. This isn't language of being captured and shamed. This is language of being slaughtered. Well, but that is language of shame. When your corpse was left exposed, that was a shameful thing. That's right, but they weren't alive. Again, it's still an image of shame. Yeah, well... Yeah, well, we've already agreed that Jesus died a shameful death, that he was given a shameful burial. Shame and death aren't incompatible. And I agree. I would also say that the persons who I say are in hell are dead. Uh, I don't think you would. We've already established that your view is one in which uh, the, the traditional view, uh, any traditional view, is one in which the dead come back to life. They're not corpses. They're living, breathing, hearts beating, you know, uh, muscles contracting and expanding living people. But again, since life and death are more expansive than simply the, the condition of being alive or being dead, but also refer to one's spiritual condition, such as when Jesus says, well, I'll give you eternal life. Well, wait a minute, I'm alive right now, so how can you give me life? I'm well, actually, that, that's not entirely accurate. He says in Matthew uh, 25 that the, risen, that the risen saved will go into eternal life then. Um, I think he's using proleptic language to refer to the life that the, that the saved will go into when they've been glorified and made immortal. And I think the same is true in the tiny handful of places in which death is used in some proleptic way to refer to the death that awaits the lost. Um, you know, I don't think that I don't see this concept of spiritual death. But even if I did, the point is that in these passages upon which this language in Revelation draws, they're not using death in the way that you're talking about. They're using they're, they're talking about corpses, and that is nothing like your view. Uh, I don't see how. Okay. Well, okay. We'll, well, we'll leave that to our listeners to have to decide then. I mean, again, the expansive idea of life and death, uh, if, we, if, we're give, if we have given eternal life uh, upon, are we given eternal life upon salvation, or are we given it to us, uh, given to us after we die? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 25 that, the, that at the resurrection, the saved will go into eternal life. When, when, when eternal life is, is spoken of as something that we have right now, I think that's proleptic language. Look, when we talk about um, the long walk down uh, the green mile, so to speak, you know, where, where a death row criminal is being walked to the um, to the electric chair. What, what's being you know what's being shouted from the other cell? Dead man walking. You know, we, we talk we talk in terms of life and death proleptically, um, even though the death has not yet happened, and even though the life has not yet yet happened, we can still speak of it in the here and now because it's certain. And and so I just don't see any basis for for your argument. Here. Yeah, I cannot buy the idea that it's proleptic language because within their perception of uh, joining the collective in group of which Jesus is the leader. Uh, we assume Jesus' own identity upon salvation, and so we would have eternal life in him as part of the group membership. And when this also worked with a passage such as in the First John 5.14, says, I write these things that you might know that you have eternal life, which would be a present reality. Well, it would use present language. It doesn't follow from the use of present language. Again, 
prolepsis, you, by definition, uses present language. So let's, let's be careful about how we talk about this passage. I certainly understand the use of prolepsis, and I've used it as a response to the atheists on other issues and other critics. But in this particular case, I just don't see any grounds for it, and, it's, and it would not cohere with the whole idea of group membership and of being part of the collective in-group that Jesus forms. Well, at best, I think that all this does is it, says, it, 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 says, it indicates, if it's true, and I, I don't agree with you, but that's okay. I think that at best, what that means is that there is a, a handful of places in which life and death can mean something beyond physical life and death. But everywhere where death is spoken of in terms of a loss, uh, in a way that is explicit, it's always the kind of life and death I'm talking about. We're talking about being resurrected physically from the grave and having physical life forever, being made immortal, as John, as uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so that we can inherit the kingdom of God, versus, on the other hand, the other group who will be rendered corpses and their slain bodies, lifeless, unconscious corpses will stink and rot as they're being consumed by maggots and by fire. And this is the language that's used throughout Scripture, and that's why I think the tree of life in the book of Revelation is something that only the saved have access to, because there will be no granting immortal, immortality to Lost. Do the people in, the people in Revelation have literal access to a literal tree? No, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a no, it's, a, it's symbolic. It's symbolic intending to direct the reader back to Genesis 3, in which access to the tree of life was revoked, and as a consequence, they died. All right, so why can the, the language of death there be not directing people back to the spiritual death of Genesis 3 also? Because you and I don't agree that that's spiritual death. When God pronounces the curse that is the um, reiteration of the promise he made, it's, it's physical death that's in view, not some, some imagined spiritual death. No, I see spiritual death as the primary thing, with physical death as a symptom, so to speak. Well, you're not going to get that from Genesis 2 and 3. Again, I think that the traditionalist argument hinges on what I think is a very poor uh, and, and, uh, and unresearched examination, examination interpretation of the phrase on the day that you eat the fruit you shall surely die elsewhere the same kind of language and I don't have this in front of me but I'll, I'll give you I'll send you guys an email afterwards so you can include this in the show notes or whatever Nick but elsewhere that very same language is used to, to not to refer to dying on the day that you eat of it but on the day you eat you, you're eating on the day you do whatever it is that you're being warned not to do you become guilty of uh, a crime sentenceable by death and, and when God reiterates the curse when he reiterates the, the judgment that, that pronounces the sentence that was alluded to in Genesis 2, we see it's entirely in terms of physical death. You will return to the ground whence you came. You, 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 are, you will no longer have access to the tree of life so that you will not live forever. This is not spiritual life. This is physical life, which is why the physical life came to an end. All right, but did, when, when the, when the, when the uh, violation occurred, were they not separated from God? Did they not break the covenant with God? Yeah, but I don't think they died. Yeah, but I don't think they died. Okay, but did they break, okay, fellowship, did they with break fellowship with God? Sure, but they didn't die. Sure, but they didn't die. Okay, they didn't die, okay, they didn't die in a physical sense at that time, but that, would you say that that started within the framework of the story, the decay that would lead to physical death? Yeah, it was, it was the beginning of their mortality, or the beginning of their inevitable march towards death, the very thing that you don't believe will happen to the lost. Well, the withdrawal, the withdrawal of fellowship and the withdrawal of uh, spiritual uh, conversation with God is all, in my view, partial of that. I see physical death as a symptom of the spiritual death. Unless you're, unless you're a risen lost person. Unless you're a risen lost person, then your, your separation from God won't lead to your death. Right. Uh, well, right. Uh, well, <laughs> it certainly, it certainly is. You're still spiritually separated from God and still spiritually dead. I mean, you're not. 
now, even now, the living non-believer is referred to as spiritually dead, are they not? No, they're not. You'll find the spiritual death language nowhere used in Scripture. At best, what you have is language like you once were dead and now you're living, but this perfectly fits within the idea of prolepsis. Again, the spiritual death idea is a concept that has been imposed upon the text in order to account for the clear and numerous and repeated and diverse biblical uh, verses that, that point us to the, the sentence of death for the loss. My point is, though, that in, the, in Genesis we do not find at all a concept of dying in some sense prior to dying in the physical sense. What you find is that access to the tree of life is revoked so that they will eventually physically die. But in your view, the lost won't have access to the tree of life. They'll be separated from God relationally and in a number of other ways. But they will never die. And I think that's, that's a, a terrible misreading of this passage. Well, I don't think the tree of life is uh, – I don't think you're understanding the role I give to the tree of life, although I don't think it's a literal tree of life. Actually uh, – now, let me, well, let me go back to what you said about no spiritual death, but you just quoted a phrase that says you were once dead. Does it say you were spiritually dead? Or what does it refer to? I've already told you. I think it's prolific. You were once dead because you were on your inevitable march toward everlasting death. You know, it's prolific. Dead man walking. You were a dead man walking. But now you're alive because you have embraced the Christ whose blood covers you and so will grant you immortality and everlasting life. Okay, so the non-believer prior to being, prior to being saved is not dead? Not literally, no. Not literally, no. And not spiritually in any meaningful sense of the word. But not spirit. They're not spiritually dead before being saved? What are they then? Are they alive or dead? Well, I don't think spiritual life and death is, is phraseology you're going to find anywhere in the, in, in the Bible. So I'm not sure what... In that, I, uh, the majority of scholars, I think, greatly disagree with that. Well, can you, can you show me anywhere where spiritual death is a phrase or something like a phrase that's used in, anywhere in Scripture? That is implied right there. I mean, well, it seems to me that the prolepsis idea is being used as a bit of a prop here. Well, hold on. If, 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 you're, um, if you heard somebody say that, you know, if you heard somebody shout, dead man walking, as you're walking down uh, from the prison cell to the electric chair, am I, am I supposed to understand you as saying that there's some sense in which that person is actually dead? No, actually, no, actually they don't even see. Yeah, remember, I used to work in prisons. I understand what they're doing. It's not referred to. It's not being used as a, as a prolepsis either. Basically, they're they're mocking. They could be mocking the person who is on his way to death, death row. Yeah, they're mocking him. But, but but what does it mean? What does dead man walking mean? It means that the person is as good as dead. They're going to be killed. And I think that's the exact same language that we have. I mean, that's what prolepsis is. It's speaking of a future reality as if it's present because of its virtual certainty. And I think that that's what's going on in the passage we're talking about now. But then the issue is, what does, what does death actually mean? And we're getting back to that here. And it, I have no problem with the idea that it's sometimes used in a proleptic way, or that it might be. But again, I don't see any reason to add that in when, it's, when Paul says you were once dead. I don't see any reason to add that in unless you're starting with the idea that you really need that. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just end it with this, and that you have the final word on this particular point, and it can move us on. But yeah, of course, we don't we don't believe in just sola scriptura. We believe in tota scriptura. And so, of course, when I see myriad upon myriad upon myriad of reams and reams of biblical texts in, in every in every genre in every imaginable way saying that the risen lost will be raised mortal and capable of dying and will die and perish and be destroyed contrary to your view then of course I'm going to take this this passage we're talking about proleptically.
because that's one that best fits the rest of Scripture. Of course, not going to interpret the same passages in terms of honor and shame. Okay. Yeah, passages which talk about the shame of dead people instead of living. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, well, we're going to stop at this point just to say that I'd like to remind everyone that's listening to the show that everything we do here is listener-supported. I don't get any pay for this. I certainly can't pay my guests for coming on. Everyone who comes on here volunteers their time, and I volunteer my time to make sure this show goes off. So if you're blessed by this show, if you find it's a bastion of scholarship and apologetics and it really helps you in your walk, why not consider supporting the work that we're doing here and doing so financially? At least prayerfully, but if you can, please support us financially. Now, if you want to do that, you can go to my blog at deeperwaters.wordpress.com and click on the Donate button. That will take you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. Yes, you've gone to the right spot. Then you make your donations there, or even better, except be a monthly donor. And then you email me, or you email Debbie Lacona, the financial guru there, and say, Hey, um, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters of Deeper Waters, and we will get your donation. It will be tax-deductible. And also, there are other ways you can support us. We do have an Amazon store. You can buy books that are talked about on the show there. And we've got some e-books that are out. Mine and J.P. Holdings' book, Defining Inerrancy, is out. And he's got he's got one he's working on that I've edited that with the editing process. But I've written with an atheist called God and Natural Disasters. It looks like that's the plan. And then one coming out on the Apostles Creed, JP, could you give us some information on when these books are going to be coming out? Okay, well, of course, okay, we're, still well, of course we're still waiting on a couple of people to do things, but I think we're aiming for them to come out, some, both of them to come out sometime next yeah. month, aren't we? Okay, yeah, once I okay, get all the yeah, stuff, in my, all the stuff in my hands, it takes less than a day or two to get it up on Amazon hmm. Kindle. Okay, so go and buy these books, and a small uh, portion of which, which you buy, they'll go to help us out, and we could really use the support. And I'll go ahead and tell you that we've got a new computer on its way because my old one just isn't really up to task for surfing the internet or doing the show. I have to do all the shows on my wife's laptop right now. So please consider giving. And remember, we got the end of the year coming. End of year giving helps with your taxes. So if, if you're blessed by the show, please support it. Uh, JP, would you care to tell about the ministry you have at, of uh, Tectonics and how people can support it? Oh, sure. Uh, oh, sure. Uh, and by the way, I understand we are getting paid in My Little Pony merchandise. Isn't that correct? Um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, never mind. Um, well, the Tecton Ministry, tectonics.org, T-E-K-T-O-N-I-C-S dot O-R-G. And remember to put in dot O-R-G because if you put in dot com, you'll get an engineering firm in Virginia, and they have no interest in answering your questions about Jesus. Um, right now, as fact, just today, in fact, uh, online is the newest uh, material I put up. And it's titled Scripture and Slavery, in which I have a look at uh, what the Bible says about slavery, both Old and New Testament. I also have a look at how uh, various sides in the debate over slavery in the uh, 19th century America uh, used the Bible. And it was really a rather fascinating study because I went through looking at what atheists had to say about the subject and other critics had to say about 
about that. And amazingly, they were they failed to do even some of the most basic things like defining what slavery meant. Or even for that matter, they say, well, slavery is bad because it used the human being as property. But they, there's, the concept of property is something they don't even bother to define. And people who are specialists in that field uh, point out that it's a very difficult uh, concept to define in the first place. But with that in mind, I went through Old and New Testament texts discussing it and discussing the social world of the Bible and how it related to slavery, and also picked out a couple of from each side of the debate in the 19th century to see how they handled Scripture. And what's rather funny, and Mark Knoll made a point of this, is that people who were on the pro-slavery side interpret the Bible a great deal like fundamentalists do, whereas the abolitionists were much more scholarly and much more nuanced in their interpretations. So it was a rather fascinating study. It wasn't as long as I thought it would be, but I'll just have to wait and see if um, some people pick it up and criticize it, and then maybe I can have an expanded second edition. In that bad uh, position about, about the abolitionists versus their opponents, that's kind of the same thing we've got going in def defining inerrancy, right? Yeah, we've got that too. Yeah, we've got that too. Uh, you want me to talk about that sure. just briefly? Okay. Uh, okay. Defining, uh, defining inerrancy, and this is where uh, we've had this uh, you know, with issues with some people out there in, in the camp, like Moeller and Geisler and others, uh, is how do we define uh, the doctrine of inerrancy and what exactly constitutes an error? And we believe that many people, uh, and I should mention this is an uh, e-book you and I have co-authored, uh, we believe that many people uh, make inerrancy uh, too hard to defend by defining an error in modern precision literalist terms, whereas the uh, idea of what would be an error in the biblical world uh, was not as strict um, and uh, so we are we, we put that out first as an ebook and uh, with just a few essays mostly written by us and a forward by Craig Blomberg the biblical scholar and uh, this we're working now on an expanded edition of defining inerrancy where we have a few more uh, scholarly contributions and where we uh, you know, look at some of our own issues in more depth uh, and we're hoping to have that prepared to submit somewhere by April if all goes well Chris and one of, your, one of your prior guests uh, was, was going to help us, too, Kurt yeah. Yeros. Yeah, he was, he's going to be part of the yeah, team, too. Yeah, he was on here November 8th, I believe, and we talked about the project some. Um, Chris, how about you? You're a fee apologetics or rethinking here, or perhaps both of them. How can people support what you do? Well, well, before I, I well, answer that question, I, I, I want to just add that I, I think that you, both of your ministries are, are worth supporting, and I do hope that listeners will will do so. As for my ministries, The Apologetics, you know, check out theapologetics.com. It's, it's, it's kind of a combination of the words theology and apologetics, theopologetics.com, and, and you'll be able to figure out how to, how to support my ministry there. Uh, I, I do a lot more than talk about hell on that podcast, um, which is why I want to focus on Rethinking Hell as part of this podcast, and so that's the topic that we're discussing now. The, the Rethinking Hell Project is a, is a collaborative effort uh, on the part of a diverse group of conservative evangelicals, primarily to promote conditional immortality and annihilationism as the view that is most consistent with what the Bible has to say, but secondarily, as I've said earlier, to improve the tone and the tenor of the intramural evangelical debate about hell, which, as I've already said, too often generates more heat than light. Um, I think that by the grace of God, we've been very successful at both of those things, uh, and RethinkingHell.com has quickly become the premier and growing resource for proponents of all views who want to better understand the conditionalist view. Um, as for some of the projects that we've done beyond just the blog and podcast earlier this year, 
as you already mentioned when you introduced me, Cascade Books published our first book, Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism. That's a book that I really think your listeners should check out. They're going to get um, contributions over, that are hard to find or are incredibly expensive nowadays. Uh, contributions from Edward Fudge, Stephen Travis, John Stott, Clark Pinnock, John Wenham, Basil Atkinson's E. Earl Ellis, Ralph Bowles, Harold Giabod, Anthony Thistleton, and a whole host of others. It's a really fantastic resource that I hope our listeners will check out. Um, and, and also in June, we hosted our, fir- our first conference uh, in Houston at the uh, Lanier Theological Library, at which speakers and attendees from all around the world gathered to build a community and to celebrate the life and work of Edward Fudge, who's the author of what I've already said is the best book on the topic, The Fire That Consumes. Now, what, what may be of interest to your listeners is that many of the presentations that were delivered at that conference, as well as a number of original contributions from, uh, from other scholars, including Terence Thiessen, which is a name that many of you might be uh, familiar with, these will be published in our second book by Pickwick Publications next year. Um, we're kind of playing around with the title, but it's going to be a festschrift uh, honoring Edward Fudge. Uh, and then in late June of next year, we're going to be hosting our second conference, this time in L.A., the, the Fuller Seminary campus there in Pasadena, California. And we're going to be considering the growing challenge of evangelical universalism and what we think is the ability of conditionalism to better answer that challenge than the traditional view. Tickets will go on sale for that conference soon. Uh, announcements will be made as far as the speakers and uh, call for paper and all that kind of stuff will happen very soon. People can check out RethinkingHell.com or RethinkingHellConference.com if they want to stay up to date on details. And as far as supporting the ministry, if you appreciate our attempt to foster an improved dialogue by all evangelicals on the issue of hell, um, there's, it's really easy if you go to RethinkingHell.com to support us. Just go to, uh, I think it's about or something like that, and there's a link that allows you to donate either monthly or, or even just a one-time contribution. So we'd really appreciate it. Point out to the listeners that both of you have books on this are available on Amazon. The Rethinking Hell is thirty six bucks on paperback, ten bucks <clears throat> if you get it on Kindle. JP's ebook is considerably cheaper though. It's uh, <laughs> it's three bucks on Kindle. So and it's called What in Hell is Going On? And now, Chris, you said something and I think it'd be a good way to as we go into the final segment of the show to talk about this summer. You, I think you said something about evangelism and how things are done in evangelism. How about when we end talking about how our views matter when we're doing evangelism? Do you want me to answer that? First? Do you want me to yeah. answer that first? Yes. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, sure. I, I, so I, I already concurred uh, with um, with JP that the this traditional the traditional traditional view has been a, a real stumbling block to evangelism, uh, and, and I think that's an important reason why this issue needs to be rethought. Uh, if, in fact, the Bible clearly taught a traditional view, um, then I think that we would have to accept it no matter what its utility in evangelism. But as it turns out, I don't think the Bible supports any traditional view of eternal torment, no matter what that torment consists in. And, and, and here's the thing. I, I am a Calvinist. That's one area in which we differ. Um, and, and so I don't think that anybody's mind is going to be changed simply because we remove one of those stumbling blocks. But I do think that the Holy Spirit is the one who changes hearts and minds, and I think that the Holy Spirit is going to bless our evangelistic efforts uh, more the more that those uh, efforts accurately represent what his word has to say. And so that's why I think that this is important. But there's a second issue, a second implication of this whole debate uh, that I think is really important in terms of apologetics, and it's actually more intramural apologetics than, than external apologetics. And what I mean by that is 
I think that so long as any traditional view, whether that's JP's or anybody else's, uh, so long as the traditional view of eternal torment dominates evangelical thinking, I think that we're going to continue to churn out Christian universalists. Don't get me wrong. I don't think that universalism has a biblical leg to stand on, but the problem is that the traditional view, besides being unbiblical, is just ill-equipped to deal with this growing challenge. It can neither assuage the emotional and philosophical concerns that woo people to a universalism, and, and, I, and yet, again, I think that's true no matter how much JP and others try to air-condition hell, as, as uh, Al Mohler, I think, has put it, or somebody else, uh, but nor can its appeals to Scripture hold up to scrutiny. And so when Christians who are unfamiliar with conditionalism see that the traditional view just can't compete with the comfort offered by universalism, and when they see that all of the arguments that traditionalists make from Scripture unravel when closely examined, then they're going to embrace universalism as the only apparent alternative. And here's why I think this is so, so, so big of a problem when it's a real internal apologetic concern. I think that uh, among several reasons, the reason this is a big deal is because I think that embracing universalism inevitably, inevitably leads people to replace scripture with feelings and philosophical speculations as a basis for one's worldview. Uh, I have friends who are universalists who, who may be listening to this, and I'm sorry if that comes across harsh or unfair or whatever, but I've seen it in virtually every argument that I've had with universalists. The myriad and diverse biblical texts promising the eternal punishment of the lost are twisted or dodged through creative gymnastics routines read through the lens of emotions and unverifiable philosophical claims. That's what I think is a real apologetic impact of this issue, secondary or, or maybe almost equal to the one about, uh, about atheists rejecting Christ. Conditionalism isn't as attractive as universalism in some ways, I'll grant that, but it's much more comforting than any view of eternal hell, and simultaneously far more consistent with Scripture. Universalist scholars can punch all sorts of holes in traditionalist exegesis, but when faced with the simple, careful, elegant exegesis of conditionalists, they've got to resort to those emotional and philosophical claims, which, lacking the impact they have in debates against eternal torment, are far less likely to persuade Christians who wish to base their worldview primarily on Scripture. So, so I, I want to see – I'm so passionate about this issue not only because of Christian unity, which I've already talked about, not only because of evangelism, but also because I don't think that universalism is good for Christians to believe in. I think it radically uh, warps one's basis for one's faith and, and one's basis for one's theology, and I don't want to see that happen to the church. <clears throat> but I want to say something like quick to give you a little more chance to promote something. You mentioned Al Mohler, air conditioning Hera. You're going to be debating Al Mohler again soon, aren't you? Well, Lord willing, if, if plans don't change, um, Al Mohler has agreed to Justin Brierley to appear on his show, Unbelievable. Uh, to debate this uh, topic with me. There's a little bit of background to this. As I already mentioned, we held our inaugural conference back in June in Houston, and uh, the New York Times reported on this, um, and both myself and, and the, Re the Ministry of Rethinking Hell. Uh, by the way, I'm only a part of that ministry. I'm not like the head or anything. But anyway, we, we featured in that article, and shortly thereafter, on an episode of The Briefing, uh, Al Mohler commented on that New York Times piece, and I think that he got a lot of things wrong, both historically and theologically, biblically as well. Uh, and so um, I was encouraged and, and delighted when Justin told me that he was able to get Al Mohler on uh, to discuss this issue with me. We're going to be recording December 16th, if plans don't change. And I imagine that it'll be shortly thereafter, one of, you know, a Friday or Saturday thereafter that uh, that our debate will be published. JP, Chris has given a pretty serious charge. You're a preparing the church, apparently. Maybe not you personally, but your view is for a Christian universalist to take hold. What do you think about that? <clears throat> uh, I haven't had any positive responses from any universalists. 
and uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think. I frankly think a lot of people uh, don't know enough about the world of the Bible to really understand my point at, at this time. I, mean, I have had a YouTube video up explaining these claims, uh, explaining this whole thing, and many of these people uh, that I deal with, many of the atheists on there, don't understand it as being any different from a traditionalist view. They think I'm still preaching literal fire, and they don't get it. Uh, it's going to t it's going to take a while to get people to understand. First of all, that the world of the Bible isn't just like the one they walk outside and see every day. That uh, it's, it's an entirely different cultural presuppositions, an entirely different way of thinking. And I'm particularly grateful, though, because I, I have friends, from example, Indonesia and other readers from places like China, who uh, have confirmed for me, like this is the way we think, and they they can relate to the kind of view of hell that I'm explaining. To them, this makes a lot of sense uh, it, it, because you know, in their view um, you know, just the idea of honor and shame continuing into the afterlife that that's just perfect sense to them they wouldn't have expected anything otherwise now I want to talk about evangelism briefly and I said before that you know, one of the things that originally turned me off Christianity was that people used hell in evangelism we should note uh, that the, the model for evangelism is given in the book of Acts for how uh, uh, Peter and Paul preach to people and you'll notice uh, but there isn't a whole lot of mention of hell uh, in any of those uh, preachings. You see that they focus on proofs such as uh, Jesus rising from the dead, uh, Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, Jesus and the apostles doing miracles. If we ever get to any kind of judgment or condemnation, it's sort of briefly mentioned at the end as like, you better act because uh, this might be a result if you don't. But it's certainly not any sort of emphasis placed on it uh, as it is today. Uh, there was one fellow, on, an atheist on YouTube, I dealt with recently who uh, I, I'm one, and I'm curious to see whether Chris has heard of this guy. You ever heard of a fellow named Estes Purple? No. <laughs> well, he apparently did a film a long time ago. Uh, he held the traditional literal fire and torture view of hell, and he made a film in which he tried to depict what that would be like. And it's exactly the kind of film that would make both of us cringe, although for, maybe for slightly different reasons. Um, and, and this is what some people view as evangelism. And I said, well, no wonder we're having so many problems. If this is what yeah. you put first. And people are imagining their friends and neighbors in this condition and whatnot. And at the same time, I'd have to say, um, I'm not so sure. And I'd be curious, have you made, has Rethinking Hell made any YouTube videos yet or anything like that? Just yes yeah. or no on that? Okay. Have you had any reactions from atheists or others to that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, as I've already indicated, not all atheists are going to react more positively to our view than to any traditional view. Uh, and so certainly there have been atheists who are like, oh, I mean, maybe it can happen in one of two different directions. They could say either, and they have said either, oh, so instead of torturing us forever, God is just going to obliterate us, you know, as if um, as if it's equally bad. Or they'll go the other direction and say, oh, if I don't believe, I'll just you know cease to be. You know, yeah, it's 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 the, the reactions are mixed for sure. Yeah, I, I was just curious about that because I know there's, like I said at the beginning, there's some people who are never going to be pleased unless God gives them flowers and candy when they show up, and, yeah. and even yeah, then they might they might say it's the wrong flavor candy. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. We certainly need to move away. You know, we need to follow the New Testament model of evangelism a little more closely. Uh, you know, they did not tell people to believe based on hell. They didn't also did not tell people to believe based on their personal testimony. And, uh, I'm not saying don't ever use that. I've written an article on this where I explain that you know, we're not. I don't think we need to completely stop using it since we're, it's so much a part of our culture to be to use that kind of thing. But we need to concentrate more on the evidence, and that's, uh, for example. Jesus rising from the dead. That's what Paul said. If Christ is not risen, your faith is in vain. And so that is the key point. That is the reason to become a Christian, because X act happened in history, and we need to shift the focus to that particular way of thinking and, and stop and stop dealing so much with what's with personal interactions and how we feel about things. That's going to be hard to do, but uh, I think it's a necessary focus. I can agree to that. Sure. Um, Chris, one thing I'm thinking about with uh, what... JP was saying, and some of you said that uh, so many atheists were, have looked at your video and said, well, I'm just going to be obliterated if I don't believe. Um, some people could say, doesn't this give you kind of some concern? Because it looks like the judgment for you is going to be everyone gets the same kind of treatment. Because if there aren't any degrees of obliterated, you're either annihilated or you're not. Yeah, I mean, the question of proportional justice, I think, is an important one, but it's it's too often treated by traditionalists who have apparently no imagination. I'm not, I'm not accusing you of that, but it's too often treated by uh, traditionalists who have a terrible imagination as if there simply is no possible way to account for degrees of justice in, in, uh, in traditionalism. I actually think the challenge is far better a challenge against any traditional view because if everybody lives forever, I don't care what degree of torment they're in, they're going to experience it forever, and, and I think it's going to be equal in either way. But I don't make that an emphasis of my argument, so I'm just mentioning that in passing. In terms of our view, how can proportional justice be accounted for? I think there are several ways. First of all, um, I think that the difference between being killed by means of the electric chair or by hanging or by shooting or lethal injection, the, the experience of being put to death is actually quite different in each of those cases. And I'll be frank, if, if I had to be executed for something, I would much rather go relatively peacefully by, by a lethal injection than by an electric chair or by hanging or whatever. So I think, that, I think that the means by which we are destroyed can certainly account for degrees of punishment. Uh, in fact, I think that's the way Edward Fudge explains it in his book, The Fire That Consumes. He says that um, the, there are an infinite number of possible combinations of the type of suffering, the intensity of suffering, and the duration of suffering as part of a destructive process uh, that can account for degrees of justice. That isn't my view, but it is one that's prevalent within the, within the conditionalist community. I'm more inclined to think that, uh, that it has to do, and this is going to sound familiar to JP, is going to have to do with the degree of shame uh, that the uh, that the risen lost feel as they're being sentenced and, and judged and, and uh, executed. Um, if, uh, if if two people are uh, resurrected and both killed, but before they're killed, their 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 deeds are laid laid bare before the whole world, and one person feels a lot more shame for that than the other. I think that can account for degrees of, uh, of punishment as well. If God and possibly redeemed mankind, depending upon how all this plays out, forever remember the the, the lost in contempt, which is what is the message of Isaiah 66. It's not about living people experiencing shame. It's about the righteous experiencing contempt at the slain corpses of God's enemies. 
if, if, if they're forever remembered in contempt, and some people are remembered more contemptuously or contemptibly, I'm not sure which conjugation of that word is, is the right one, uh, that can account for degrees of punishment as well. And some traditionalists might be like, oh, they're not going to care how much they are held in, what, what regard they're held in. Well, JP knows that that's false. They will care quite a bit. Um, but, but, so there are multiple ways in which that can be addressed. But let me just say one more thing. Jesus said, or maybe it was Paul, I'm, I'm not a biblical uh, encyclopedia, said that if you're guilty of one sin, then you're guilty of violating the entire law. Um, and, and so uh, is it possible that we think too highly of, uh, or, or you know, is it possible that we think too much about the disparity between two people's sins? I think it's possible. Will there be a difference? Sure. But it is, is, it as, is there that big of a difference between fantasizing about another woman, uh, you know, instead of your wife versus killing a bunch of people? There's a difference, but maybe that difference is not as pronounced as we might think. JP, what do you think about all that? Well, you better ask your wife about that, you might end up being the one killed. <laughs> That's what I'm saying, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. there's certainly, uh, you know, there is certainly too much of a focus on, like, well, which sin is worse? And I'll, I'll just throw out the example of this. I've said to people that homosexuality is too often viewed as a super sin. Uh, and, you know, I, I point out, and it's rightly pointed out that you can go to a church and while they're condemning homosexuals, you've obviously got people who have been uh, engaging a little too much gluttony at the Golden Corral. And what's it about their sin? Uh, we, we're, that's not our job. And, uh, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly our job to point out sin to a certain extent when it can cause harm. But uh, we're, not, we're not in a position to uh, be deciding who's doing the worst sin. And uh, certainly let God take care of things like that. And, again, we, we all agree that whatever we think is the eternal fate of people, we agree that God is going to be fair. And we agree that God is going to be just. And so let's not bother trying to do his job for him. <laughs> JP, what do you think about the position? Or do you think it's a problem for the conditionalism? Do you think it does kind of make it seem that everyone gets the same kind of treatment? Um, it, 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 uh, you do need to explain that to some extent to a lot of people because we still have a many people still have a sense of justice. Uh, just even in the criminal justice system, you know, people would, people would object very much if they thought a rapist was being punished the same amount as a uh, someone who just bought an ounce of marijuana. So I would say certainly conditionalists uh, uh, are going to have to come up with some kind of explanation for that, even if you know, even if it's the one like Chris gave, which I, you know, I imagine might satisfy some people. I don't know. Uh, I'll be interested if he tries that out to see what kind of reaction it gets. And I suppose we should point out fairly that even if people uh, don't like it, that's certainly not a judgment as to whether or not the view is true. Well, and, and let's also point out that these are the same kinds of people who probably would object to uh, to the state putting people uh, putting two people together in life in prison when one has killed a bunch of people and the other has just smoked some pot. So, uh, so I don't think that the traditional view fares any better in this regard. No, probably not. And, and, and again, since I've worked in corrections for a long period, uh, that's exactly the kind of thing that's going on. I mean, we are putting people who just sold an ounce of marijuana in with the killers, and uh, that's a serious problem in my view. With just just uh, penal theory today, uh, shouldn't be doing that. Well, um, JP, don't you, in your view, have a way that? There is proportion in the af in the afterlife. You make clear that the punishment fits the crime, right? 
Sure, the punishment fits, sure, the, punishment fits the crime, and there's a, you know, and, and the difference, of course, is that God is the one judging it rather than us, of course. We can trust God to make an adequate judgment. Now, in, in terms of the shame uh, and exclusion, though, the one thing that comes to mind is that uh, people will uh, continue to remember the sins that, you, that were done against them throughout eternity and will continue to affect the way that they conduct their afterlife, as I say, the way that they remember things and the way they experience their their life in eternity. To that extent, you, that extent, you could arguably say it is fair that the ones who sinned against them will continue to have some experience too. And in, in the ebook, I use the analogy of uh, from Star Trek Voyager of uh, a planet they went to where someone was accused of murder, and their punishment was not to be put in prison, but for some sort of uh, mental, uh, some sort of device to be put in their heads that made them constantly relive the crime from the victim's point of view. Uh, and something to that effect, I think, might be a fair thing to experience throughout eternity because the person you did that to is going to experience it throughout eternity, too. And, of course, you know, it might be a case where as time passes on, it will become less painful to them. And in that case, your, your own uh, reliving of the crime will become less painful as well. But uh, in general, again, my thought has been that the life, that the life of the unsaved will maybe not be much different than it is here now. And again, I use the analogy of living in a trailer park. What do you think about that, Chris? <laughs> I, I, I'll just leave it by saying, leave I, don't it by saying I don't I mean, think much of it. I, I mean, I, um, I, I, um, I think that when you, uh, with the utmost uh, respect to JP, I've already said I have respect for him and for his ministry, and I encourage people to support when, it. When you, when, when you read the myriad and diverse texts that promise execution for the lost in, in a radically opposite way, and I do think it is radically opposite, uh, then of course you're going to have to come up with what I think are all sorts of machinations and, and things like appealing to Star Trek Voyager and stuff. I mean, in my case, it's real simple. I can simply appeal to the difference that most people recognize between being uh, between being bled out to death, for example, you know, which will be painful and take a while until you fall asleep, or, or, execu or executed by means of uh, the electric chair or by hanging or whatever, or, uh, or just being peacefully put to sleep. I mean, the differences between the experience of being put to death is something I think we're familiar with. I don't think that we need to come up with all sorts of inventions. But I just want to reiterate, this is not for me a critical point of contention. I think that both views are, have an equal difficulty, however difficult that is, at answering how, how on one hand, God can be just and proportionally just in putting everybody to death forever, or, you know, eternally tormenting people, whatever that torment consists in. Either way, I think, I think things are equally difficult. JP, do you think you're using some machinations and such, as Chris said, or... I'm trying to explain. I'm trying to explain concepts, concepts in ways people can understand, which is something that I frequently try to do. But I think the important thing to note in this particular case, I did not come to this whole thing looking for a solution to the problem of hell. What happened is that I studied their social world. I studied this whole template of honor and shame. And as I started to study it more deeply, I realized, well, wait a minute, this this has some bearing on the whole issue of hell as well. So I wasn't looking for that. Solution. I wasn't looking to. I didn't. I didn't actually come to study hell until afterwards, until after all this had been in my head about the social world of the Bible. And with that in mind, what I'd say is. Uh, Bring, you know, 
know, brings four, my view to the fore and makes it you know, a better one, you know, a better one is that it deals with the text as people of that time would have understood it and how they would have interpreted it with the primary understanding of honor and shame as their as their chief concern. And so, in that case, what would they think of this view, this picture of a dead body? They would think, well, this has to do mainly with eternal shame. This has to do with experience of shame. And that's what I would come at this whole thing as. Hey, Nick, do you mind if I ask? We don't have a lot of time left, and I wonder, there's an argument that plays somewhat prevalently in both the article at Tectonics on Annihilationism as well as in the book, having to do with the way that Jesus' first century audience in particular the Pharisees, would have understood his language about final punishment. And I'd really love an opportunity to dialogue on that a little bit. Do you think we could spend a few minutes about that? I really don't think we have enough at this point, but maybe if you can ask one quick question on it, and JP can give a quick response. Well, okay, I'll just put it this way. In his book and on his website, he makes the argument that according to Josephus, the Pharisees believed in eternal torment, and since Jesus didn't contradict them explicitly, that therefore his words should ought to be understood in light of how the Pharisees would have understood it. Now, I think that Jesus goes through all sorts of ways to counter any notion any of his contemporaries might have had that the law should be eternally tormented. But because Josephus' testimony plays so prevalently, in um, in uh, uh, JP's argument, I'd like to know what what JP makes of Josephus's claim, apparently anyway, that the lost would not be resurrected but would instead suffer their eternal torment in a dis in the disembodied Hades. I mean, after all, Josephus writes that uh, the Pharisees also believe that souls have an immortal vigor in them, and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously, richly in this life. And the latter, that is the uh, the, 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 the vicious, are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former shall have power to revive, uh, to revive and, and live again. And elsewhere he said they, the Pharisees say that all souls are incorruptible, but that the souls of good men are removed into other bodies, but that the souls of bad men are subject to eternal punishment. Now, I, I'm not making from that last statement that Josephus believed that the Pharisees believed in the Platonic transmigration of souls, as some people have tried to argue. That's not my point. But my point is that in both of these places, Josephus makes it pretty darn clear that in his view, the Pharisees denied that the lost would be resurrected. But of course, we know from Paul's testimony, who is far more reliable in my eyes than Josephus was, we know from Paul in Acts 24 that the Pharisees did believe that the wicked would be resurrected. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men, the Pharisees that is, themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of those that just be unjust, unjust. So the question I have for you, JP, is if we're going to rely somewhat on the testimony of Josephus concerning what the Pharisees believe in the afterlife, should we therefore disbelieve Paul when he said that the Pharisees believed that the lost would be resurrected? Well, there's, there are a couple of things on that that made it a couple of different branches of the Pharisees. I mean, we have some evidence that they were a more diverse group than is commonly realized. Uh, Paul himself made, you know, was under one one particular teacher, uh, you know, under Gamaliel. Yeah, yeah, Gamaliel. And another branch of the Pharisees may have believed an entirely different thing. Uh, we know certainly that Paul got the Pharisees, uh, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees going after each other just by saying a couple of things. And I'm sure you could have gotten a few groups of Pharisees going at each other just by saying a few things. I mean, they certainly disagreed about Jesus, for example. On the one hand, you had Nicodemus who obviously respected Jesus, but you had other Pharisees who did not respect Jesus, or you had other Pharisees that respected him or did not respect him. 
So you know, clearly, we can't. We have to be critical with these kind of things. And uh, unless Jesus confronted the Pharisees specifically on the issue of the resurrection of the lost, we really can't say much more on that to the extent that I did on that. Okay. Well, I just I just want to affirm everything you just said. That there may have been a diversity, and so I think that we really need to put to bed this argument that because Josephus said that the Pharisees believe in eternal torment, therefore they must all have done so. And I'm glad we can agree. I'm just saying we have to give some weight to it. We have to explain it. We have to explain it. Uh, okay, I'm going to jump in here again because we're getting to a point where we need to be wrapping things up here. And I, I'm sure both JP and Chris would agree with me on this one that this kind of debate should not be the final arbiter in the study. Go do your study afterwards. Be the beginning. And they've both got great resources for that study. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. One thing we wish we agree on is never stop yep. studying. And you got me about Bear Green, too. Now, um, Chris, if uh, someone wants to find out more about you and what you're doing, where do they need to go? Well, uh, well, uh, theapologetics.com is, is the my is my personal blog and podcast. Uh, it, it slowed down a bit. I'm um, I'm I don't do this for a living. I, I'm a software engineer and I have a family of four kids and a wife. And as JP, I'm sure can imagine, that leaves me with precious little time to do this kind of stuff. Uh, one day, perhaps God will bless me with the ability to do this full time, but unfortunately, He hasn't yet. Uh, and so that has slowed down in light of my responsibilities at home, as well as I'm, I'm right now getting an education at Liberty University online. Uh, and uh, and I'm also looking for a job in the software industry. So things have slowed down, and on top of that, there's rethinking hell. But it's got you know well over 100 episodes of the podcast where I've, where I've interviewed a ton of different people on a ton of different to topics, including yourself, Nick. Um, and uh, so I would encourage people to check out theapologetics.com. Uh, there's, of course, rethinkinghell.com as well. And if they want to learn a little bit about my particular journey, uh, they can go to uh, Rethinking Hell and put their mouse on the uh, blog button at the top and go to Introductions. And down toward the bottom will be an article written by me introducing myself and how I came to the position I hold. So people can check that out out there as well. And I'm also available on Facebook, facebook.com slash chrisdate. Um, and, uh, and I'm also very easily accessible. If anybody wants to email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com, I love discussing this issue. I'm passionate about it, and I don't think I bite that hard. <laughs> so I'd encourage people to check me out. Yeah, and uh, it's also worth pointing out that when I came on your show, it wasn't just me. My wife was there with me as where we were talking about Asperger's and how the way church treats it today. That's right, and I think that we're still trying to work out uh, for you to come on my show to talk about presuppositional apologetics because I know that you're a critic uh, to some extent of that apologetic methodology, whereas that's the direction I lean, uh, and so we'll, we'll make that happen in the yeah, and future. Yeah, and there's also talk about a debate coming up on here sometime in the future on my topic. Is there any final word in general you'd like to leave for the audience today? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this... Discussion, although maybe I've been a little bit heavy-handed, I suppose. I think that generally speaking, this has been a good example of how two Christians who love one another and who love Christ can discuss this issue in in a way that treats one another with respect and with kindness, in a manner that's in a manner that's befitting the calling uh, to Christ that we have. Uh, and I would just encourage Christians, whatever view they hold on this topic, um, to to realize that this issue is not one worthy of division. There are certainly issues worth worth dividing over. The deity of Christ, the nature of the triune Godhead, uh, the resurrection, you know, I mean, unfortunately, too many Christians are denying the bodily resurrection of both Christ and 
uh, mankind in the future, and that is, frankly, deplorable. And so I think that there are issues worth dividing over, but this is not one of them, and I want to see Christians treat each other as brothers and as sisters in Christ, and I think that um, that would be the single biggest thing that I'd encourage our listeners to do. The second being um, to re-examine what the Scripture has to say and to look more closely, because it's not quite what you think it says. JP, um, if people want to find out more about you and or get in touch with you, what do they need to do? Okay, well, of course, the website okay, well, is tiktoks.org, as I mentioned, as an email address is jphold, jphold, at att.net. We're usually able to answer within a day or so, except maybe on the weekends. Of course, I've got a lot of stuff going on, but I put priority on answering emails, because I think that's one of the most important things if you're going to do ministry. It amazes me how many people write to me sometimes and say, oh, I wrote to so-and-so, and I'm not going to any names. So I wrote to so-and-so, and they never wrote me back. I'm glad you wrote back. Uh, I mean, that's just essential to doing ministry. You have to be you know, willing to answer uh, when people ask you questions. And I'm glad to hear you know, when someone like Chris is doing the same thing. And I know that you've always done that, too. You've always been quick to answer. It's, it's very important. And you've also got a YouTube channel, don't you? Yes, I do. A Tech Talk yes, TV, uh, where I use sort of a very primitive animation, the you know, best you can do when you're not using software, which I think is kind of cheating but, anyway. But that's one of the places where I pursue my mission of trying to explain things in ways that anyone can understand easily. And inevitably, unfortunately, that can cause a compromise with getting all the details straight. But uh, it does help at least give people a taste of things that they need to know. And my wife and I have sometimes done voices for your videos, in fact. Yeah, you have. And and in fact, I think the last one you just did, one of yours was just posted within the last week or so, when when where you were the voice. Oh, yeah, you'll have to tell Chris what character you played. Nick actually plays the role of Lucy, who is like a sort of a cartoon version of Lucifer. Yeah, wait. Well, it's, it, worth, mentioning, way, it's quick, worth mentioning, by the way, Nick, really quick, that, that I, I've interviewed a couple of other folks that are connected with your ministry, JP. On Rethinking Hell, I interviewed Adam and Melanie Zenz, and I think that Melanie Zenz in particular has contributed to uh, voices in your in your videos. Isn't that right? Yes, she has. She's one of the, along with Nick's wife, she's one of the leading uh, female voice actors, and her brother, Zach, has also contributed, too. I think the one they, one they were both in, which was one of the funniest I ever did, was a parody of Storage Wars, where uh, some atheists were trying to find um, artifacts in a Jerusalem storage uh, facility that they thought would disprove the New Testament. Yeah, I, I can't say when my wife saw that I was doing the voice of the devil. So, well, that explains a lot. Um, well, JP, do you have any final word you'd like to leave? Uh, no, not at this point. I think we're all set, and I just say if anyone wants further information uh, from either of us, I imagine they'll want to check out our uh, written material on the subject. Because, you know, debates, are, debates are good for getting a taste of things, but if you want a full story, you always have to go to something more in-depth, like something that's in writing. I'd like to thank both of you for coming on. I hope we'll see both of you back here again sometime. Thank you. Thank you. And for now, I'm Nick Peters, and I can remind you next week, Cynthia Hampton is going to be on discussing Jehovah's Witnesses. And I'll be back next week 